0: Actually, it's good to see, see you guys again. Good to be with you again. You know, as a child and as a young person, I was raised in a culture of death. Fear was with me always about dying. I was obsessed with it. And salvation by works and human efforts does nothing to dispel that fear. And because my religion was too uncertain, I remained fearful, and then salvation by grace through faith came into my life, and with that came peace. I had to struggle with those thoughts, but eventually I had total peace about my life. And so my title this morning is, Are You Ready to Go? My text, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Please pray with me as I seek God's anointing as I generally do with Psalm 19:14. And so dear Lord, this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my salvation. Amen. Amen. If you knew that you were about to die, what do you think you would say? See, the last words of a dying person have always fascinated me because they are so revealing of a person's heart and soul. And here's just a few examples of famous last words. John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated President Lincoln, said only two words, useless, useless. George Washington said, Doctor, I die hard, but I'm not afraid to go. Benjamin Franklin said... A dying man can do nothing easy. Thomas Jefferson said, Is it the fourth? John Adams said, Thomas Jefferson still lives? John F. Kennedy said, My God, I've been hit. And P.T. Barnum, the famous circus showman, said, How are the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? But I believe that the greatest words ever uttered by a mortal man about to die came from the lips of the Apostle Paul. The year was 68 AD. Paul was in what is known as, or was known as, Mamertine prison in Rome. It was a dark, damp hole carved out of rock underground, and in Paul's day would have been filled with sewage, sweat, vermin, and rats. It would have made our prisons look like a penthouse on Fifth Avenue. And Paul is penning his last words to a young preacher named Timothy, and he makes the greatest life-ending statement in human history. Paul says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I hope that I can say that at the end of my life, whenever, wherever, and however it may be. You see, the real test of your religion, your faith, your belief, your creed, is not just, can you live by it? Now that Paul has come to the end of life's journey... He takes three last looks. He looks around at his present. He looks back at his past and he looks forward to his future and here's what he sees. First, his pending departure. Paul says in verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. See, very soon, the school bell of life in Paul's class will be over Forever. And yet there's no consternation, just anticipation. And he knows that the days are now numbered by the hours, and his hours perhaps by the minutes. But he's not ashamed, and he's not afraid. There is no fear of the shadow of death, only faith in the shepherd of life. You know, after all, Paul's heart is already in heaven. See, Paul said in Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Paul's home is in heaven. And he said in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. His hope is in heaven. Paul spoke in Colossians 1.5 when he said, hope is which, which is laid up, our hope which is laid up in heaven. See, as far as Paul was concerned, God was in Paul's heaven and all was right with the world. And as Paul was waiting for these final hours to tick away, he was doing two things. First, he was pouring out his life. And again, he said in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Now, this phrase, poured out, from the Greek comes something that literally means to be poured out as a sacrifice. You see, Paul's life was not being taken, it was being given. He did not see himself as a prisoner who was being involuntarily executed. He saw himself as a sacrifice that was being voluntarily offered. The Lord Jesus said, he who gains his life must lose it. And I believe that Paul had gained his life years ago by losing it in surrender and service and sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I read about a great Christian who lived a long time ago by the name of John Ardley. He was brought before his persecutors who were about to burn him to death. They were trying to get him to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to him, you will not be able to bear the fire. The fire will convert you. The burning wood will be a sharp preacher to you. And John Ardley replied, you can burn me if you choose. But I will tell you this. If I had as many lives as I have hairs on my head, I would give all of them up. Before I would give up Jesus Christ. Listen, you cannot kill what has already been sacrificed. Paul had already poured out his life as a sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, he was preparing for his death. Paul uses an interesting phrase to describe his impending death. He said in verse 6 And the time of my departure is at hand. You know, this word departure is used here only once in all of the New Testament, yet it is one of the most poignant, picturesque words in all of the Bible. The word literally means a release, and it has several shades of meaning. It was a prisoner's word. It was used to refer to the removal of shackles and chains from a prisoner when he was about to be set free. For Paul, death was a release from the troubles of life. It was a farmer's word. It was used to refer to the unyoking of an oxen at the end of a workday. For Paul, death was a release from the toils of life. It was a soldier's word. The word could mean the striking of a tent or the breaking up of the camp when the battle was won and the war was over and it was time for the soldiers to go home. For Paul, death was a release from the trials and battles of life. It was a sailor's word. This word could connote a ship's raising its anchor, loosening its mooring, and setting sail for another port. For Paul, death was a release from the test and uncertainties of life. Finally, it was a philosopher's word. This word sometimes referred to the unraveling of a knotty problem or to the solving of a puzzle. For Paul, death was a release from the twists of life. Listen. For Paul... And for us, death will be when faith will be turned into sight and darkness will be turned into light. No more mysteries, no more confusion, no more asking why, but now living in the full light of the knowledge of the purpose of God. Secondly, considering your outline that Paul sees a powerful devotion, see, Paul looked back on his life and though certainly it had not been a perfect life, yet he could still say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And if Paul had a tombstone, this would undoubtedly have been his epitaph. What a testimony, what a witness, what, what a statement to look back on your life and to say, there was no remorse, no regret, and no retreat. And that statement reveals three things about this great man. First, He was a faithful fighter. He said, I have fought the good fight. And both fought and fight come from the Greek word agon, which gives us our English word agony. It literally means conflict or contest. See, Paul was a soldier in God's army. He had been called to a fight, not to a frolic. And for all of his Christian life, Paul had been in a state of war. He had faced three foes, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it was literally a fight to the finish. No quarter was asked, and none was given. See, Paul had been a good soldier, and he had the battle scars to prove it. He was scarred 195 times. He was lashed across his back. He had been stoned, an angry mob had, angry mob had rained stones upon his body and left him to die. He had been shipwrecked, three times floating out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He had suffered beatings, muggings, starvations, near drowning. He had been in every jail from Jerusalem to Rome. You would have been shocked if you had laid your eyes on that emaciated body, if you had seen that skin that was pickled by the Mediterranean Sea and bronzed by the Asian sun, if you had seen that back bent over by beatings, striped by the whip and bruised by the rod, yet that torn, -torn, war-torn, worn-out body had only surrendered one time, and that was to the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And I want to remind you that every saint is a soldier of the cross. When Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3, he was saying it to us. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The problem is, many of God's soldiers don't even know there's a war going on. Did you know that the third largest fleet of ships in the world are the 768 vessels anchored in various harbors throughout the United States. They are called the mothball fleet. These ships just stay in the harbor, and in case of emergency, they could be ready for action anywhere from 30 to 90 days, but for now, they just sit there, inactive. The church today is full of mothball Christians, they are anchored permanently in some sheltered harbor called a church, insulated from the world around them, designed for battle, but inactive. They have never expended one sweat, one drop of sweat, never shed one tear, never given one drop of blood for the cause of Jesus Christ. Secondly, he was a faithful finisher. He said, I have finished the race. See, Paul had accomplished what he he had set out to do from the moment he was saved. He said in Acts 20 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. I want you to notice that Paul referred to the race as my race. See, God has given each one of us our own race, our own course, our own track. I am not to run your race, and you are not to run my race. God has given every one of us to run, and we're not running against each other. We're only running against ourselves. We are not in competition with each other. We are on the same team. But notice something else. Paul did not say, I have won the race. He simply said, I have run the race. In God's spiritual Olympics, every runner is a winner if he finds his race and finishes his race. And by the way, God is not concerned on how fast you run, but how far you run. It's not how you start the race, it's how you finish the race that counts with God. Did you ever run high school track? Or at least know someone who did? Well, did you ever hear of anyone winning the 95-yard dash? No, and you never will, because the winner is not the one who runs the fastest 95 yards. The one who runs and wins is the one who runs the fastest 100 yards. You see, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. You can run your heart out for 95 yards and even lead the field, but if you stop five yards short, you'll lose the race. There are so many Christians who have run 95 yards in the race and quit. I call them used-to Christians. They used to sing on the praise team. They used to teach Sunday school. They used to come to Bible study. They used to win people to Christ. They're losing the race. Not because they're too slow, but because they have quit running. You know, one of the greatest racehorses who ever lived was called Man O' War. When he died, a sports writer wrote these words quote, Some horses led him at the first turn, some led him at the back stretch, a few led him at the far turn, but no horse ever led him in the home stretch. There are some Christians who run fast at the start of the race. There are some who do well halfway, but blessed is the one who makes it a good finish. Thirdly, Paul was a faithful follower. He said, I have kept the faith. Now by faith, here Paul was referring to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. He was referring to the whole counsel of God found in sacred scriptures. See, Paul never ceased preaching the book, the blood, and the blessed hope. Paul declared his faith. Paul demonstrated his faith. Paul defended his faith, but Paul never deluded his faith. He preached hell hot, heaven sweet, sin black, judgment sure, and Jesus saves and let the chips fall where they can. You know, we're being told today by church gurus, baby boomer experts, and church marketing agents, don't preach on hell. Don't talk about money. Don't mention politics. Don't be controversial. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said, the chief danger of the 20th 20th century will be religion without holiness, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, and heaven without hell. Well, it may not be politically correct in the 21st century it may be old-fashioned. It may go against the world's grain, but we need to stand by the old-time religion, preach the old-time book, share the old-time gospel to a world that is lost in old-time sin. And lastly, number three, consider your outline of prospective delight. Paul could literally say, heads I win, tails I win. For if he lived, Jesus was with him. And if he died, he was simply going to be with Jesus. And as Paul looks ahead, he sees three things awaiting him that brought tears to his eyes, a smile to his face, peace to his heart, and joy to his soul. First, he saw a final reward. He said in verse 8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. See, Paul sees a crown waiting for him. And it is a special crown. It is an imperishable crown. This is the crown of righteousness. It is an eternal crown made with eternal hands that Peter describes in 1 Peter 1, 1.4 as incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It is an imperial crown. The crown was given, verse 8, by the Lord. This crown was given by the king. It is the victor's crown. And it is an impartial crown. It was given, verse eight, by the Lord, the righteous Judge. That's important to Paul. He had stood before crooked judges who were biased against him because of his love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his stand for the gospel. But now Paul would be able to stand and be judged in heaven's bribeless hall, where no corrupt voices sounded. Second, he saw a return, a future return. This crown would be given, verse 8, on that day. What day is that? It is the day of the visible, vibrant, victorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And third, he saw a family reunion. Us. Not only would Paul receive that crown, but also, verse 8, all who have loved his appearing. There will be many crowns and many crowned that day. You know, I can just imagine when Paul wrote that last song and he put his pen down and just began to sing, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. I probably should have asked and requested that old song. Well, Paul won the game of life because he never quit heading for the crown of of the king. And what Paul did, you and I can do. Come to Jesus. Love Jesus. Serve Jesus. And when you die, go with Jesus. Forever and forever. Amen. I guess it's time for Bible study. Hopefully everyone here is going, attending. And you'll be joined by others who will be going to the next service. But remember... Go and take your worship with you. It doesn't end at the doors. Go and pronounce and tell the world of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one of them tells them something about the one true God. Amen? Amen. See you next week.